Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. I think Megan has like happiness coming out of perhaps her her pores. I'm not sure exactly what's going. You appear to have orange paint on your hands, your phone. There's some on your stomach somehow. It's not just orange. It's cheerful tangerine. Oh, I feel man. like I'm a little bit of a walking Jackson Pollock uh, art piece right now because I'm just covered in it. It's like paint speckles <laughs> everywhere. Addy Dog had it in her paws. Yeah, so I'm painting my office and I'm not the cleanliest with paint. Is that a sign that you're a really good painter or a really bad painter? I'm going with a really expressive painter. <laughs> I love that. It's actually amazing and it looks incredible and you finished in like a few hours, I think you might have another option here professionally. Oh, thank you. Well, I went to, I wasn't quite sure about it at first. So yeah. I went to Home Depot. I got this cheerful tangerine color, loved it, started putting it on the walls. And I was like, oh man, this is bright. <laughs> I don't know about this, but I figure it's my office and I just want something that's kind of vibrant and fun. I feel like what are walls, but a blank canvas to have some fun. Oh my gosh. We need to have that as a something on our walls. That quote, I actually remember your quote yesterday when you started painting with it. You're like, I guess it came out a little brown at first and you're like, it looks like the 1970s up here. <laughs> it really did. It totally did. But now it's funny, as it dried, it got more and more vibrant. And I just like stood there watching it. As, it was like a time lapse of me standing there watching the paint dry. And to, for full visual effect, Megan is also wearing a tiger print shirt that's also somewhat orange, but a different color orange. We really need to make this a video podcast. We totally, I was actually thinking that the other day. I feel like it would be fun to edit it and give people, I don't know though, I have I have trouble looking into video cameras. That's My true. eyes would be all over the place. Yeah, if, if you're listening and whenever I'm on a Zoom call, I get so exhausted and also talk way worse. I've learned that I have to turn off my camera because seeing myself or even thinking that I am being seen is so rough for me. I'm not sure if that's like a psychological issue I have or if it's normal. No, I've talked to a lot of people and I'm, I think that's normal. I feel the same way. So I get exhaustion from looking into that green. So my, my computer has like that green light oh, yeah, where yeah. I look into for the camera. And by the end of the day, I'm like, damn, this green light is horrible. But I find it's weird. So I have this weird thing is my eyes kind of like shift about. Mm. It's almost like I have an inability to like look directly into the camera. I don't know what that is. It's probably some <laughs> weird psychological thing you could do to analyze on me, but I've noticed that as a habit. I'm imagining you as like on Scooby-Doo back in the day when they had the paintings on the wall and the, the painting's eyes would just like follow Scooby and Shaggy. That's <laughs> Megan and Zoom calls, just like following things that are happening going on. Well, we might as well just put a Mona Lisa up there with our cheerful tangerine uh, wall art. <laughs> Rolling scoop? Uh, it was a bad Shaggy. I tried though. Um, but yeah, and also we, you know, we always talk about what we see out our window when we're filming. Our neighbors have started running, and I like to think that they're doing it because of our podcast. I'm pretty sure they're listening to our podcast out there right yeah, now. Yeah. Well, they they have this one. One of their daughters is on a unicycle, and I, they go by every day at the same time. And I'm pretty sure it's for gym class. And usually the family would be out, and they're like tossing a frisbee to this girl on the unicycle. But they started running, That's and so it was cool. so cool and so beautiful, and doing it together as a family. And I feel like again just kind of like one of those small perks of COVID is people yeah. getting out and enjoying different things. Is the girl riding the unicycle or is she running? She's riding the unicycle. Okay, so your family she's, she's the pace crew for the family who's running. That's, I, I need to step up my coaching game, get a unicycle so I can pace some people through some workouts here. The next, the big step will be do they start running with llamas? Like if we start to get running llamas in our neighborhood, then we'll know that we're really infiltrating not just the human species, but all the species with our podcast. We've really gone full scale on this lamentary. We're like <laughs> yeah. comedic lamentary. 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 Um, so this is episode 32, which is going to be the Blake Griffin episode. Um, he's a famous basketball player, um, but we're not going to talk about him because of basketball. I love Blake Griffin as a comedian. 
which is wild because it's the 6'10", 260 guy who was a first, I think he was first overall pick in the NBA draft. I'm not exactly sure. Um, who's made himself into a comedian. Well, actually, that's perfect. I feel like the thing about being a, a comedian is that there's usually something about you that stands out because like whatever that is about you, you've been like perceptive of that your whole life. Yeah. I feel like it fosters this ability to see different things in the world than other people do. That's, that's super interesting. I didn't even think about that because he was, he grew up in Oklahoma, went to like an evangelical school and said he always felt a little bit out of place. Makes sense that he's going to be a comedian because I, I feel like in the basketball court, there's less chance to express that nature of yourself. Um, I, I heard him on a podcast with Pete Holmes. He said a lot of great things. My favorite, like to paraphrase his joke, butchered a little bit. Um, it's like, he was like, Athletes always say after games, no one thought this was possible. Everyone doubted me my whole life. I got here on my own. And he's like, yeah, it was possible. You're 6'8 and the strongest person on earth. Um, I'm 6'10 and 260 pounds. And all I had to do to do that was to eat and go outside just a little bit. <laughs> That's incredible. What I love about his comedy too is the fact that he integrates basketball into his comedy. And I feel like it's just, it goes to show the power of weaving in whatever it is that you love about life into your work. Yeah, he and did. Th and he didn't cool. do that at first. You know, at first he was like, well, I need to be a comedian, like a normal comedian. Because if, I'm, if I talk about basketball, I'm just a basketball player. Um, and Neil Brennan, uh, among other comedians, told him like, no, just talk about what you know. It's about observing. And there's a great quote I heard, which is like, uh, the more you are yourself, the more you're unlike anyone else. And to really lean into that, I actually tell athletes things like that before job interviews. It's like, just be relentlessly authentic. Whatever that means, because that will be what lets you shine. Well, I also think not only is it what let, it's it's what let, lets you shine, it's also too you're going to get yourself in the circumstances that are right for you. Like sure. you know, if you're showing up to a job interview and saying that you know data science, you're like, <laughs> and you don't know data science, or you're like you know really dressing yourself up or being someone that you're not, like that job position probably isn't going to be for well, you. It's actually a great point. I remember interviewing for a law professor, remembering in San Fran, and was so not the job for me. And thank God that I am not very good at acting because if, I mean, I probably still wouldn't have gotten it, but it would have been such a different life. And I think a worse life because of that. Well, one of the ways that Blake wove basketball into his comedy was he had this really cool sketch where, you know, he, he was getting on people. So a lot of people often rag on athletes for not being great in interviews after games. And it's yeah. like, it's like, what did these, these interviewers just shove a microphone into our face? We just played for two hours. <laughs> often what when you, they're naked. Yeah. What do you expect? And so he made someone come on stage and do like 20 jumping jacks, 20 pushups through this whole exercise routine. And then he shoved a microphone in their, <laughs> into their face and was like, who have you been having sex with? And there was just dead silence on this guy's face. I had no idea what to, just how to respond. Bewildered. Yeah, just totally bewildered. And he's like, see, this is what athletes deal with. I love that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it must be so hard to be a basketball player in the spotlight like that. And it's it's interesting that he then chose to go into the spotlight in a different way that made him even more uncomfortable, especially because he he praises like the benefits of humility so much. Um, and that one of the reasons he wants to be a comedian is the bombs, is like the getting up there and not having anyone respond to you and what you're saying. Well, I think that's a little known fact about comedy is the fact that once we see comedians on Netflix or you go yeah. into like a big center and see, see comedians, they've probably practiced that set 50 times. Yeah. They probably bombed 20 different times. And they've done 10 years to and get to like, that point. And that, the bombing itself is integral to the success of getting up there and having these good jokes. And something like, I feel like I'm often hard on myself. Like I listen yeah. to podcasts or I listen to things that I've been on. I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but I'm comparing myself to people like Neil Brennan or Blake Griffin or these people who've honed their acts in for, for years. Yeah, and who are covered in like orange paint and leopard, leopard print. Um, yeah, and what Blake says is things like he's terrified every single time he gets on stage um, in a way that he never is on the basketball court. And But when he gets off the stage, he always remembers, I'm okay. This is okay. And that's one of the things I'm going to take away from learning a little bit more about Blake Griffin is like, I'm okay and this is okay. You know, like the things that scare me and that I put on pedestals, whether that's like, 
starting an article I don't want to do or like a podcast, like both Megan and I get nervous before these, right? Like I'm, I'm right now, I can feel my, uh, my nerves, not my nerves, like I'm like getting hot, you know? Um, and like, I'm okay. And this is okay. And that's like a, there's so much power in that. Well, what I love for me is, is that I find that power builds. It's like, so I do one of these things. It's like, I, you know, do a presentation or I write a paper and it's like, I got this. Like yeah. I can carry that momentum into other things. And I really rely on that momentum. In life. And even if you feel it still, like if, if you're listening to this and you feel that about anything, I, a lot of people feel about public speaking, for example. I definitely feel it about public speaking. <laughs> definitely, definitely, um, definitely. That like the goal isn't necessarily to make it go away. The goal is to understand that like, if you just put one foot in front of the other and give yourself a chance, like that's the mind message from Blake Griffin too, is just give yourself a chance. And I think where I feel it the most is with writing. Mm. So I'm actually going through this phase right now where I've done the research, I've crunched the numbers. I'm sitting on like four different empty manuscripts right now for <laughs> writing. And I fortunately stumbled into, I'm taking a scientific writing class this course, and it's been game changing for me. So I was able to drop this heavy computational math class and switch it out for a course on um, writing and science. And it's been so helpful, but it's also just reminding me of like the power of keeping it simple. And it's, it's game changing. So what's so powerful about it to you? Because like scientific writing is actually something that I, just, I I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but I struggle with a little is like understanding how to structure things or I get overwhelmed by the constraints almost like how, what has it taught you? Well, I think for me, it's like, I feel similar, but I also feel like whenever I'm writing, I strive for perfection. It's mm -hmm. like, I want this sentence to be perfect and this sentence to be perfect. And I do that on the first draft. And so what I think I've learned in this class is just the power of keeping it simple. Like the smartest people, the smartest writers, especially in science, especially in math are like just enabling the audience to understand what they know and like keeping it simple and not trying to layer in these really complex words, these yeah. complex language. And that to me is so helpful because I think that's like naturally how my brain tends. And it's like, there's like a part of me that like wants to like throw in these fancy words. It's like, I'm writing this for a publication, but in reality, it's like, it's just about communicating in an effective way. Perfection's so scary as a writer, as anything, like, you know, in the past, you've said that you have trouble starting things. And I remember when we were writing our book, there was one chapter that uh, you were just struggling to get going on. And I, I forget what it was. It was chapter four. So yeah, it was yeah. the mental health chapter. And I was like, this is so ironic because here I am really struggling. And this is the chapter on mental <laughs> health. And I was, there's something about it was just fascinating. Yeah, there were some good tears shed before you started. But the funny thing is once you started, that ended up being the thing I think that resonated with people so much about the book. And we get emails about it years later, you know, talking about that chapter. So we never told who wrote which chapters, but Megan wrote that chapter. Um, and, you know, it's super cool. So do you think it's going to take away some of that, like getting started nerves and things like that in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think for my brain, just the process of like communicating in a simple way um, and also like not trying to make that first draft perfect is yeah. something that's going to be game changing for me. But I think the other thing that I've really come to realize too is just the power of having good editors. <laughs> uh, so David was the editor um, at the Duke Law um, Environmental Journal. And to this day, I'm just like so grateful to be able to pass something off to you and have confidence that you're going to look it over. We do sometimes like wine reads where <laughs> we're sitting there at night drinking a bottle of wine and the, the edits become progressively worse. Yeah, yeah. At and the very beginning of the glass of wine, you can have confidence. On the end of the glass of wine, do not trust a damn thing I say. But we read it out loud. And it's I feel I feel like also too, there's something about reading reading things out loud that provides a lot of clarity because like when I'm writing, sometimes I'm reading it out loud in my own head, but I'm not like sitting there reading it out loud to you. Yeah, well, you do it at for all of my articles. Like I it's been so like emotionally liberating for me that the way I write now is I'm just like, okay, no idea is a bad idea. And I can also get free ideas that I can throw in that only Megan would be allowed to see ever uh, and trust that like, you know, it's this playful element where it's not just me speaking into the void or talking to some anonymous audience member. It's me talking to you. And, um, you know, I think maybe that's a good lesson for everyone, whether even if you're on stage or something, finding by finding the play, it's almost like you have to have it 
the specific type of audience in mind. Well, it's fun because I feel like the way that we just structure these editing sessions is they're kind of like date nights. Like, yeah. you know, we sit there with like pizza and wine and we're going through and, and doing this editing session. And I feel like I have to make it like playful and fun and easy for you to understand because otherwise it's going to be like a rough date night. So it's it's kind of nice with with writing to have that. Yeah. Sometimes on, on my articles, Megan will just have a comment bubble that's like WTF <laughs> underline. Um, and actually the what it reminds me of the scientific writing is in first year of Duke Law, um, they had you know, legal writing course. Um, and I thought I was crushing it and doing really great. And at the end of that semester, it still was my worst grade in law school. Um, and, you know, I think the part of it is my style of writing is different than this. Like I like writing to, is so subjective. and I'm like, not, um, I like to do it non-linearly and just come in from different sides and, and just attack it from all angles um, and, and really do that playful thing. And that did not work for legal writing um, at the time. Um, and, but, you know, law school ended up going great. And what's so funny to me, and this is like my little bit of a touchdown dance, is this year I was invited back to be the guest speaker to the entire 1L legal writing course. Did you ever wind up doing that? I did on Zoom, but I didn't I didn't mention that I got the lowest score. Because you should have. I, I know I should have. Because I feel like so many people struggle with this. It's like, I, there's, I feel like there's tons of great writers who in fifth grade yeah. had some sort of manuscript, some sort of essay that got shot down by a teacher and they're like, I'm never going to write again. And that paints my soul. And it's like, no, that's that's a subjective process. Yeah. Like writing is totally subjective. I look at poetry and I'm like, I have no idea yeah. what the I heck is I, going on. I don't get it. You know, like just put words on paper. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea what's going on. And that's totally a subjective thing. It's just not for me. That's so interesting to think about. Like, I, I'm the same way with poetry. And I imagine that's how the writers with me actually gets to something Pete Holmes said too, that like, you're not, you're not trying to be for everyone, you know, like you're, it's okay. In fact, that's the best thing. It gets back to that Blake Griffin quote about like, you know, by being yourself, you're unlike anyone else. And that's the whole idea. And so embrace that in your writing and the classes and stuff can help. But I think sometimes it's just following your own path. I feel like you can tell a lot about someone by their writing. Like, yeah. I feel like I would love to have, I, I think about dating apps all the time, but I would love to have a dating app that asks you your thoughts on the Oxford comma. And I think that would separate a lot of people in the population. Like I am an Oxford comma okay, person. You're a fan. We Correct. are both, okay. we, we cool. established this early on. We are both Oxford. Trowrunner does not do, Trowrunner magazine does not do Oxford commas. So every time I give them, I've stopped using like lists of three. I just put ands in between everything. I'm like this and this and this and this, because I not having an Oxford comma, like, pains my soul. Well, it's funny. I think if you started with a dating app that asked about the Oxford comma and then transitioned to font choice, you could get even more specific <laughs> with pairing people together. So I noticed that all of my training logs for athletes are in Times New Roman yeah. and all of yours are in Arial. And oh. I feel like there is, we do have some slight, like I feel like for me, like Times New Roman just feels this, like this mathy kind of font. Yeah. And I love it for some reason. It's kind of old school, but I love it. I think I'm either going to become a Comic Sans guy or just go wing. Comic Sans? Go. I feel like if... If Times New Roman is, is mathy, I think <laughs> Comic Sans is truthy. Oh, that's I like the, it. That's like this, this Steve Colbert Daily Show thing. Yeah. It's definitely truthy. The fascists at the Capitol definitely were using Comic Sans. Maybe we should just go wingdings and go like all in on being a, a mystery enigma. Um, wingdings is how I feel writing sometimes, staring at the, the blank page. And might oh as well wingdings. I feel wingdingy during podcasts sometimes too. Um, oh, yeah. We, do we have time to do this? Let's talk about Tiger Woods' po yeah. uh, documentary on HBO freaking awesome. Watch it if you haven't. It's called Tiger. It just came out. Um, the, the specific story I wanted to highlight real quick is they in the 2008 PGA Championship. So this was after Tiger had become you know the greatest one of the greatest athletes ever. Um, he had reached the very top. He had knee surgery. He was battling through knee pain every single swing. He would grimace. Um, and he comes back and wins this tournament that no one thought was possible. And it was held up as this incredible moment of um, you know triumph. And you know, now we know that all of this triumph was on a bed of like self-loathing and you know womanizing and cheating on his wife and and all this other stuff that 
you know, it all went together in the same pot. And like, it's, I think a, a liberating message also because it's, it's all more complicated than it seems. There, I took away so many different things from that. But one of the things I took away was just, the, you know, they showed him being, you know, there's just throngs of people wherever yeah. he went and just the toll that fame takes on him. So there was, there was this great quote in there about the fact that he loves scuba diving. And the yeah. reason that he loves scuba diving was this quote that he said, the fishies don't know who I am down there. Oh. And to me, that was one of the most, it just goes to show how, just how hard fame is on yeah. people. And, you know, he's like the pinnacle of fame. He's got this $100 million deal with Nike. He's like being, you know, followed by of people. And I think I've seen it even in like athletes who yeah. have like, you know, 10,000 Instagram followers or 20,000 Instagram followers or whatever it may be. It's like this, this pressure to perform. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's something that is, can be hard on people well, it's, and or, important to talk about. Or 10 Instagram followers, you know, or 10 or whatever, because like, you know, we were talking about the zoom before. I think part of that is I feel like more of a performer when I'm on zoom, you know, like it just makes me aware of my presence in it and that I'm being watched in a way that's like one one millionth of what Tiger would go through, but I think is something that we all feel. Like, I mean, with athletes all the time, as you said, you'll see like the not only the comparison things that are obvious, but worrying about how something will be perceived before it's even out there. And that's hard. Like I yeah, you, and I think it's hard. I think, you know, Tiger is probably a little bit of an introvert, but I think it's hard on anyone. I yeah. think like, you know, our our bodies like evolution, we're not made for that. Like we're not made to be watched. Yeah. And I think it's hard. I mean, I think it's just truly hard for anyone. And I mean, I think the only way to get out of that, not having any clue here is if you participate in these cycles of like little amounts of fame, which is what I would call like social media or any type of public life is to try as hard as you can to not invest yourself in how things are received. Um, because if you do, it's just a slippery slope to like, you know, investing yourself in an unquenchable thirst of like the masses, even if the masses are just 10 people. And just being authentic and kind. So yeah. the interesting thing about the Tiger documentary was the fact that Tiger himself wasn't interviewed for the documentary. He must have turned it down. So the people who were interviewed for the documentary were basically anyone he's cut out of his life <laughs> would go on to the documentary to talk about Tiger. And, you know, one of his ex-girlfriends read a letter that she received from oh, Tiger. Yeah. And it was pretty a pretty scarring letter. And it just made me think about the power of like, you know, whatever you share with people, like you got to assume that it's going to appear on a documentary at some point. Like even if yeah. you're like, you know what I mean? Like whatever you share with people know that it may reach the mass world at some yeah, point. Yeah. And time. I think it's, it's great to trust unconditionally and stuff, but also to cut everyone else slack in this world. Neil Brennan has that great thing or great idea that, um, you know, if you want to tell someone that they're terrible for saying something off hand or whatever, um, here, give me your phone. And the idea being that on our phones, all of us have things that are very incriminating just at the nature of like being human. Like being human, if all of our stuff is aired openly, it can be tough. Um, which is one reason I think in our podcast, we're trying to be as open as possible. It's like, okay, here's all of our dirty laundry, like literally in the case of Megan's paint covered clothing. And like, it's, it's okay. We can all have dirty laundry. And hopefully as long as it's coming from a place of like authenticity and, and kindness. kindness. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, because like, if you're kind to these people, no one's going to air your dirty laundry. Like all yeah. these people are airing Tiger's dirty laundry because he cut them out of his life in a rude manner. Yeah. It's so tough. Um, and then the, the uplifting thing we want to end with is, is kind of the reverse of that. So Mikhail Hagedon, um, this amazing person you should follow on all social media. Um, his his grandpa unfortunately passed away last week. Um, and Mike is one of the best humans I've ever met. I can only imagine how great his grandpa is. Um, but his, his grandpa had a note in his wallet that was to be read at his funeral. Um, and Mike posted this on social media and I asked him if I could share. Um, most of the letter was addressed to his grandma, beautiful, telling how much he loved her and everything. But it concluded with this sentence. And this is the sentence we want to take have you really remember from this episode. I had a blast in life and I hope the same for you. 
And I love that. It's wow. I got class. goosebumps. You told me that story last night yeah. right before going to bed. And I kind of laid in bed just like thinking about that for 15 <laughs> minutes, got goosebumps at first. And it just was such a powerful statement. And I think it's it really goes, goes to show too. It's like the power of like waking up each day and committing to the fact that like today is going to be, you know, and maybe not every day you can yeah. do that. Like for sure there's certain mental health issues or Sundays are just rough, but like really trying to commit to a lot of the days of today's going to be a fun day. Today's going to be like, you know, yeah. I'm going to be silly today or you know, yeah. I'm going to embrace this part of me. And I, I just... I love that. And then it's a valid goal, you know, like the having a blast, like you don't need to like Einstein theory of relativity. Very cool. Did he have a blast? Like, you know, these things, these big narratives of, um, you know, success and productivity and all that. Very cool. But I love, I want to use the Mike, Mike's grandpa theorem for evaluating like my own life, which is, was it fun? Was it, if it was fun, that's cool. Um, you know, growth is very cool too. Growth can be super fun, but like, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try based on that to cut out some things that like I might be doing just because they're things I think I should do rather than things I want to do. And it's funny when I look back, I, I see a lot of like funny stories or like yeah. entertaining stories. And it's like, it's, it's interesting to reflect on those. But what, what it also made me think of too, was the book being mortal by Atul Gwande. So yeah. I love all of his books, but this is like specifically about the process of like end of life and what, yeah. what people are thinking in the end of life. And I think you can just learn a lot about what people think at the end of life and what they value and like their reflections. And it's just such a cool thing. Yeah. I always try to ground myself in that idea. Like, I told Wandy's book, Being Mortal, everyone should read it. Um, but whenever I, I mean, we all get stressed about stupid things, right? Like I get stressed about saying something I said on the podcast, like three days later or whatever it is. And just remember, it's like, oh, it's kind of playful, you know, and, well, and grounding that in like the fact that it's temporary. Well, I think it's interesting to write those down. And then like three years later, yeah. to go back to something and you're like, I was worried about that. That's stupid. <laughs> you know? And I think it's, it's, it's kind of like the to-do list that I go back yeah. and see. And it's like, well, I didn't do any of that. And clearly it didn't matter. Awesome. So, you know, I, I think it's funny. So everyone let's have a blast and get to topic one might be the only topic. We'll, we'll see. Do you want to read it or should I? Sure. This topic is on increasing running volume. What's your advice on increasing running volume? For example, I am for eight hours of running over six days in single runs on a bigger week, plus working 40 hours a week. Is this classified as high volume running? And this is from JW. I think I wrote that down a little wrong, so I'm sorry about that. I sometimes mess up the uh, the letter transcription. Um, so first to, to JW, eight hours a week is definitely high volume running. Um, and what the way we want to start framing this conversation is you know, at the outset, acknowledge that increasing volume is the goal we are talking about here. But the at the other side of that, that volume only benefits running economy to a point and the numbers themselves are not significant. Like everyone, stop what you're doing. Remember that the numbers are not significant. Okay. I struggle with this. So yeah. I am on Strava and I love looking back at the training logs and I have this, I don't look at miles. I look at hours per week Yeah. and I have this thing in my head. I'm like, I always want it to be between 10 and 12 hours <laughs> a week. And it's this set, it's almost like this, like it's so strange that I have this because it's not like who I am. Like that's not the type of person that I usually am. And it's fascinating. I see other athletes struggle with oh, that yeah. too. Oh no, yeah. I mean, I do too. Like I want to see those numbers rack up. I think it's human nature. But I want to see it week after week after week yeah. in a way that's not sustainable. And even if it was sustainable, the body doesn't give a crap. Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite athletes to coach and be a part of his journey is Hayden Hawks. And part of the reason is Hayden, I mean, one, he's the best human ever and everyone loves him. But two, he rests once a week, every single week, no matter what, like it's non-negotiable. Um, and it's great because by resting once a week, those weekly numbers are necessarily going to be lower than some of his pro runner counterparts. And I think it's also been great for his growth, not just because of the rest, but because by doing that, it's like, well, you know, he can't, some of his, his, the people, top pros are doing 140 miles a week for him. 
it's basically impossible in six days, you know? So, well, maybe not even play that game at all and be okay with 75 miles a week with some cross training. Um, and I think we can all think about that. Even if we're at 20 miles a week, it's like, okay, these thresholds that we want to reach aren't necessarily the most relevant thing in our lives. And that's not just because of the numbers. It's also because of how physiology works for everything else. Well, I also think they're arbitrary yeah. too. So it's like, I, I've often thought about this. I'm like, well, what if we were going by the metric system? What if we were going by kilometers instead of miles? How would my training change? And likely it would change, like for some runners, it would change significantly. Yeah. If you're trying to run a hundred kilometer week versus a 70 mile week <laughs> or even hours, it's like, you know, or I don't know, the whole yeah. thing. I'm, I'm fascinated well, by that. That reminds me of, for elite male marathoners, one of the old theories for why like American marathoners were slower than some of the international marathoners is because American marathoners shoot for five minutes per mile and uh, international marathoners shoot for three minutes a kilometer and three minutes a kilometer comes out for a, you know, a few minutes faster in course of a marathon. So of course people just group around that. And there's pretty fascinating data that maybe they do. Um, so maybe that's why American marathoners have gotten so much faster recently as they're starting to go to the uh, metric system. Um, so while the volume isn't the most important thing, it is exceedingly important. Um, and it is something that if you've never increased, give yourself the go to try to increase it. We've talked about this a little bit, but the main reason we want to talk about it today is because now is a good time to do it because we're starting into 2021 to see these opportunities for racing probably coming again soon. We're not going to go on the record of when exactly that is everywhere. Um, and in that, you have this opportunity to be like, okay, now is I can build up and go for something and, and actually have my eyes on that prize. And I thought it's a fun process too. Like it's one yeah. of those things that it's like being in the trial of miles and knowing that you're like shooting your shot is something that's actively very fun. Yeah. And the, the trial of miles isn't just your miles. It's just making sure that you're giving the body all of the chances it has to adapt. And, and that's the framework to really remember when you're thinking about volume is adaptation. Um, adaptation, yes, it doesn't go to numbers. But it doesn't really go to anything we can measure directly. Even if you have a whoop strap and you're measuring your heart rate reserve and like everything else you could possibly imagine, adaptation is much more complex. It involves thousands of variables. And within the context of those thousands of variables, how you feel and like that is incorporating them in a much more complex way than we could even describe with a flow chart or anything. And that gets to like the five big principles we wanted to talk about. Um, the first one is that the 10% rule is usually bogus. So there's, yeah, there's this catch all 10% rule that I've seen a lot of sports medicine providers, PTs, practitioners, coaches reference the fact that you shouldn't be increasing by more than 10% volume. And I've seen that applied across many different time yeah. scales. So I've seen that in a year. I think Killian actually recently said something about not increasing your volume more by 10% yeah. um, across years or weeks. I've seen it like in every different or months. I've seen it in every yeah. different time variation. But there's anytime anyone says that, I'm like, there are 8,000 caveats here. Like, I want to yeah. ask so many questions. Like, what's an athlete's background? What are their goals? Are they training? In miles per week, minutes per week? Are they doing vert? Are they doing cross training? And there's just way too many variables, I feel like, to reduce it all down to a 10%. And because the body doesn't know the numbers at all, you're doing 10% of an arbitrary number to begin with. It's like, well. And why is it 10%? I don't, I haven't seen any research supporting 10%. Yeah. I think it's just like, oh, 10 is a fun number. Like, what if eight were a fun number or six were a fun number? I don't know. It feels random. <laughs> and, you know, that the body doesn't know miles and no stress. Like, the podcast for me is definitely worth some miles. I love it deeply, but it definitely means that like I need to adjust my total stress load. Meanwhile, like if you're napping on the couch, maybe you could increase by 15% a week. I mean, it just, there's so much that goes into that number. So that's number one. Uh, number two is how to actually do this in practice. Um, the first thing is to add frequency first before adding like volume across m multiple days. For us, that's usually five or six days of running a week. And what I tell athletes too is, is that adding frequency doesn't have to be this complicated thing where like, yeah. you know, it's a big run, you're getting excited, you're going the door. It's like a 15 or 20 minute run is a great way to add frequency and, you know, really, you know, get the body adapted to running five or six days a week. Yeah. And the body adapts on much like more rapid 
rapid timescales than we sometimes give it credit for. I mean, a good example is you strength work, for example. If you take a week off of strength work or lunges, um, for some people, they'll start back up lunges and be sore as shit. I know my butt hurts like hell right now because I just started back up. Mine some, does too. We're partners. Yeah, yeah. We both did some uh, very, very, very light, embarrassingly light for me, deadlifts. Um, and the idea being that constantly reinforcing stimuli, that's not just for the musculoskeletal system and aerobic system. It's also for the brain and how the brain processes signals, the neuromuscular system could even be how the genetic switches turn on and off. And so it's okay to just keep that switch turning on and frequency is where that comes in. But I think it's also the powerful thing is, is turning off the switch and then turning yes, it back on exactly. also has unique adaptations. Oh, I love that. And I think that's something that athletes often don't think about is, is like, and I'm the sort of person, like I yeah. always want to be on the on button. Yeah. And recently I've actually like stepped back a little bit in my training and I've really seen the power of turning the switch off and then turning it back on. And likely you'll reach gains from there. We're the, we're the uh, PCs of the running world. <laughs> yeah. Whenever there's a problem, don't plug it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, number three, add balanced volume rather than stacking too much stress at, at, in small periods. So a lot of times I think, you know, the quote weekend warrior approach where people will be like, oh, I'm going to run a ton on the weekend and then, you know, not spread it out as much that raises injury risk. I think it's also more negative for adaptation long-term. You want to have a background pulse in your training um, that can then, you know, you build off of, but you're not exceeding like, you know, 30 to 40% on your long run. That's almost always going to end poorly. I also think it's set up to make your long run feel pretty miserable too. Yeah. So I see athletes who aren't supporting that long run volume and go out and do a big long run. Like I'm breathing heavy, my legs hurt. And it's, you know, it's probably because that long run volume is not being supported throughout the week. Perfect. And number four, doubles. We need to do a full podcast on this. I would right? love to do a full podcast on doubles. There's so many different things to think about, like glycogen availability, um, the timing of it, um, all the different adaptation cycles. So it would be really fun. And to cover there's that. also double workouts that some of the Ingerson brothers and others are doing nowadays. Um, but you can add doubles to your training, um, short runs or bikes as short as 10 or 15 minutes. Um, these could have major hormonal benefits. They could have much weaker understood benefits related to adaptation markers and protein expression, but um, you can add doubles to your training. Um, and then number five, the the, the big one, make sure you're actually adapting to the stress. And make sure you pay attention to what the stresses are in your life. I see yeah. so many athletes discount stresses that are major stresses. Um, yeah. And so just being extra careful to that. And perhaps, you know, on, on that, having a blast. If, if athletics becomes a drag and isn't fun and it becomes punching the clock, it's like, why? I love that. There's some days you're going to have to punch the clock yeah, yeah, to yeah. have fun days. Oh, yeah. for sure. It's but not always going to be a blast. The type two fun. The blast, the blast being in the process of building Actually, and growth. Actually, same for like type 1.85 fun. We'll do a, yeah, nice, yeah. a nice mix of the two of them. Awesome. Or it's about 10% off, so it works. We love you guys. Rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do on podcasts. Woohoo! Thanks, everyone. Bye.